Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 28th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. Johnny Depp's stunt double lost his civil case after suffering an industrial injury. Here's what happened in the published decision of Anthony Angelotti versus the Walt Disney Company. Anthony Angelotti was injured while rehearsing a stunt. He was Johnny Depp's stunt double on the Pirates of the Caribbean film. Angelotti was rehearsing a human yo-yo stunt designed to simulate Depp's character, Captain Jack Sparrow, falling and rolling in Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. Angelotti was attached by a harness to a crane with a cord wrapped around his waist. He was then released from a height of 80 to 90 feet and was to perform five rollout turns. But by the time he reached the end of the cord, the tension of the cord caused him to jackknife instead. He fractured his pelvis, suffered injuries to his bladder, femoral artery, knees and legs, and suffered internal bleeding. The employer, Second Mate Productions, contracted with cast and crew production payroll to provide payroll services and to become the employer of record. Angelotti filed a workers' compensation claim with cast and crew's insurer and received benefits. He also filed a negligence lawsuit against several other parties associated with the film. The trial court concluded that the production company, Second Mate, was Angelotti's special employer and that the workers' compensation exclusivity rule precluded any recovery against either Second Mate or its employees. The court also concluded that the Walt Disney Company and other defendants owed Angelotti no duty of care and granted summary judgment in favor of all of the defendants. Angelotti appealed this decision to the California Court of Appeal. He contends that his status as a special employee of second mate is a question of fact that cannot be resolved on summary judgment. He also contends that Disney Company and other defendants were negligent. The Court of Appeal and the published decision rejected his arguments and affirmed the decision in favor of the defendants. The court reviewed the following evidence supporting the finding of special employment. Angelotti worked as a stunt performer under the direction of both the stunt coordinator, who was an employee of Second Mate, and the film's director. The stunt coordinator instructed Angelotti on his daily work schedule and tasks. Second Mate clearly had the right to control the manner and method of Angelotti's work and indication of employment relationships. The second mate hired Angelotti through his loan-out company for one week at a time under contracts of one-week duration. Thus, second mate retained the right to terminate the relationship at the end of each week with no obligation to rehire him. The court regarded this as the practical equivalent of the right to discharge at will, which is another strong indication that Angelotti was an employee of second mate. Second mate provided the place of work and all of the equipment necessary to the job, despite the fact that Angelotti elected to use some of his own equipment. Angelotti was paid a fixed weekly wage and had no opportunity for profit or loss depending on his managerial skills. Second mate hired Angelotti on a weekly basis and the accident occurred seven months later, so the duration of work was substantial. Angelotti was paid by his time rather than by the job. 
Film production, including stunts performed for the films, was part of the regular business of Second Mate as a production company. Viewing the evidence as a whole, the court concluded that the only reasonable inference is that Angelotti was an employee of Second Mate. The court declined to follow an older case, Von Belts v. Stuntmans Incorporated, to the extent that it may suggest anything to the contrary. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear a workers' compensation death case. Here's what happened in the case of Pacific Operators Offshore LLP versus Luisa L. Valladolid. Juan Valladolid worked for Pacific Offshore Operators as a roustabout. He was stationed primarily on one of Pacific's two drilling platforms located on the outer continental shelf off the coast of California. He spent approximately 98% of his working time on one of the drilling platforms, primarily performing maintenance and repair duties. He also spent time working at Pacific's onshore oil flocculation facility. The onshore facility is separated from the Pacific Ocean by railroad tracks, a highway, and a beach. Pacific's employees travel to and from the offshore platforms on a crew boat departing from a nearby pier. At the time of his injury, Pacific assigned Mr. Valadoid to work at the onshore facility, assisting in an ongoing project painting a water tank. That afternoon, his supervisor directed him to take a forklift to the rear yard of the facility and move some scrap metal. A short time later, the supervisor found him next to a tree roughly 10 feet from the service road with the forklift resting on his abdomen and chest. He was pronounced dead at the scene. The decedent apparently had stood on the top of the forklift to cut fruit hanging from a tree that was out of reach of a person on the ground. The forklift apparently moved forward while he was attempting to harvest the fruit. Luisa Valladolid, his widow, received death benefits under California's workers' compensation scheme. She also filed a claim for benefits under the Longshore Harbor Workers' Compensation Act and under the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. This act extends the jurisdiction of the United States to the seabed, subsoil, and fixed structures of the Outer Continental Shelf, an area that lies more than three miles offshore and beyond the territorial jurisdiction of the states. The act governs the rights and obligations of those who own, operate and work on offshore oil drilling platforms. The Act creates and the U.S. Department of Labor regulations implement an administrative scheme for compensating injured workers that resembles the workers' compensation schemes developed in most states. Under the Act, a worker is eligible for compensation for any injury occurring as the result of operations conducted on the Outer Continental Shelf. An administrative law judge in the Department of Labor's Office of Workers' Compensation Programs denied her Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act claim on the grounds that the death had not occurred on the Outer Continental Shelf and denied the Longshore claim on the grounds that the decedent was not engaged in maritime employment and was not injured on a maritime citus. The Benefits Review Board upheld the administrative law judge's decision. The United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit upheld the board's finding that the facility was not a maritime citus, meaning she had no direct benefits to longshore benefits. However, the Court of Appeals rejected the board's citus of injury test 
for determining the applicability of the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act extension of the Longshore Act. The Ninth Circuit formulated a new and different test. An injury is the result of Outer Continental Shelf operations if there is a substantial nexus between the injury and the operations. To meet the standard, the claimant must show that the work performed directly furthers Outer Continental Shelf operations and is in the regular course of such operations. This new Ninth Circuit test conflicts with decisions in other federal jurisdictions. Three courts of appeals have considered whether a worker injured on land is eligible for longshore benefits as extended by Section 4 of the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. One court adopted a status test, which is the employee's work must further mineral extraction from the Outer Continental Shelf. Another court required an employee to satisfy both a status and a citizen test. The employee's work must be related to development on the Outer Continental Shelf and he must have suffered injury or death from an occurrence on the Continental Shelf. And a third court rejected both the status and citizen tests in favor of a fact-intensive inquiry into the nature and extent of the employee's work. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case of Pacific Operators Offshore LLP versus Louisa L. Valladolid et al. in order to resolve these conflicts. It will be many months until the case is heard and decided. A new panel decision found that a carrier seeking contribution from other carriers is not bound by their stipulations with the injured worker. In Trini Riviera versus Fremont Compensation Insurance, the arbitrator found in a contributing proceeding that applicant sustained a specific injury and two continuous trauma injuries. The dates of injury found by the arbitrator were the same as the stipulated award of 40% permanent disability and future medical treatment approved by a workers' compensation judge in the underlying cases. The findings by the arbitrator would effectively deny the petitioning carrier contribution from the other defendants. This carrier contends on reconsideration that it is not bound in the contribution proceeding by its stipulation with applicant as to the dates of injury as set forth in the stipulated award and that the arbitrator should have separately determined the dates of injury based upon the medical and other evidence received in the contribution proceeding. The WCAB granted reconsideration and rescinded the, the decision of the arbitrator. Regardless of the dates of injury stipulated to by the carrier as part of the underlying award, it is necessary for the arbitrator to determine the dates of injurious exposure that led to applicant's cumulative trauma injury in order to properly address the issue of contribution. It is necessary to determine not only the dates of injury, but also the period of injurious exposure. Stipulating to dates of injury is not the same as stipulating to the dates of injurious exposure. Here, the dates of injury included in the stipulations may or may not cover the periods of injurious exposure that caused applicants' injury. This issue must be determined by the arbitrator. This decision is supported by the 1999 writ-denied case of Fremont Compensation Insurance Company versus WCAB Cobbs at 64 CalComp Cases 1400. 
In Cobbs, it was argued that the elected against defendant was bound by the date of injury included in the stipulated award. In rejecting that argument, the panel in Cobbs adopted the view that Labor Code Section 5500.5 essentially provides for a de novo determination of the liability of non-elected against defendants without regard for the determination of the liability of the elected against defendant in the underlying case in chief. The determination of liability in a contribution proceeding requires a determination of the dates of injurious exposure that caused the applicant's injury. That determination has not yet been made by the arbitrator and the case was returned to him for that purpose and for a new decision. And now our fraud report. Ronald Haas Sr., the president of R.J. Haas Construction Company of Saratoga, California, has been convicted on 10 counts of insurance fraud for failing to accurately report payroll to his workers' compensation insurance carriers and the Employment Development Department and for failing to pay insurance premiums to the State Compensation Insurance Fund and First Comp. Haas was sentenced to one year in the county jail and is required to make restitution to the entities involved and is placed on three years probation. Back in 2007, the state fund submitted a suspected fraudulent claim referral form to the California Department of Insurance Fraud Division for investigation. The referral alleged that Haas failed to accurately report employee payroll to his workers' compensation carrier. Haas claimed that he had no employees and that subcontractors did all the work for his company between 1998 and 2005. However, during this period, four workers' compensation claims were filed by injured workers. Haas reported payroll to Skiff only after an injury was discovered, and then payroll reporting stopped shortly thereafter. Subsequently, Haas obtained workers' comp insurance policies through First Comp and again reported minimal to no employees. An investigation by the California Department of Insurance and the EDD revealed that Haas misrepresented office staff, project superintendents, foreman, and even some of his own family members as subcontractors. A forensic audit was conducted and revealed that Haas owed nearly $595,000 in insurance premiums to Skiff and over $229,000 in insurance premiums to First Comp and roughly $814,000 to the EDD. Haas was arrested in 2009 for felony violations of the insurance code. Haas has already paid the full amount of restitution owed to insurance carriers, the state fund, and First Comp, and to the EDD. And in regulatory news, a new report claims that federal regulators are very critical of many of the state workers' compensation systems. The Federal Workforce Protection Subcommittee held a public hearing at the end of last year to hear testimony on what they perceived to be inadequacies. One of the witnesses was John Burton, the former chairman of the National Commission on States' Workers' Compensation Laws created by the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. He is also a professor emeritus on the faculties of Rutgers and Cornell Universities. He provided the backstory for this hearing. He claims that over the past 100 years, there have been periods of reform and regression in states' workers' compensation systems. The level of workers' compensation cash benefits declined substantially in the decades immediately after World War II, 
And one consequence of this deterioration was the creation of the National Commission on States' Workers' Compensation Laws as part of the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. This commission issued its report in 1972, critical of the state workers' compensation programs, describing them as, in general, neither adequate nor equitable. The National Commission made a number of recommendations for state programs and described 19 of them as essential. And in the aftermath of this report, there were substantial changes in a number of state laws. California adopted mandatory vocational rehabilitation during this time in order to comply with some of these recommendations. But that improvement has come to a halt and, if anything, is now in decline. The 1970s were a reformation period, the 1990s a relative tranquility period, and the years since are the counter-reformation period. A number of states changed their laws during the 1990s to reduce eligibility for benefits in contrast to the historical standards for compensability. Burton described a current trend in states' workers' compensation systems as a race to the bottom. Many states compete with each other for businesses, which put pressure on legislatures to lower compensation costs. As eligibility for workers' compensation benefits has become more restrictive, there has been a cost shift to Medicare and Social Security disability, placing an additional burden on federal taxpayers. The committee also heard testimony that was critical of the AMA guides. The committee will be asking the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, to do a study of costs imposed on the federal government as a consequence of this perceived deterioration of various state workers' compensation programs and issue recommendations. And now our medical news. A new study finds that defensive medicine is very common in orthopedics. A survey of orthopedic surgeons in Pennsylvania shows roughly one-third of them causing imaging tests to be ordered to protect them from lawsuits instead of helping their patients. These findings were discussed this month at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in San Diego. Experts say that this trend represents an enormous amount of wasted money that could be spent on other healthcare needs. Earlier surveys have found rates of defensive medicine where physicians order diagnostic tests of little benefit to the patient, largely to protect themselves from a lawsuit, to be as high as 93%. Researchers in this study asked members of the Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society to voluntarily and anonymously record a series of imaging orders they made on one day. The researchers also asked the surgeons whether they ordered the test for defensive purposes or believed they would actually benefit the patient. Overall, defensive medicine accounted for nearly one-third of the images they ordered. The study also showed that being sued in the last five years and being in practice longer than 15 years made doctors more likely to order imaging tests for defensive purposes. California Workers' Compensation Claims Administrators can screen requests for authorization for questionable defensive but unnecessary diagnostic practices and when in doubt, send these requests to Utilization Review for a determination of medical necessity. 
And in other news, many Fremont Indemnity Company former employees enjoyed their annual reunion this month. Fremont was one of the largest California-based workers' compensation insurers until 2003. Although the company and its operations have ceased, Fremont was the platform and training ground for a close group of industry professionals who have continued to stay in touch. The group of former employees has even grown stronger over the years. The second annual Fremont Winter Reunion was held this February at Mahara's Mexican Restaurant in Pasadena. This event was attended by more than 65 prior Fremont employees. A great group of attorneys, WCAB judges, claims VPs, managers, supervisors, adjusters, employers, doctors, and brokers attended the reunion. A few have retired and several have successfully changed careers and industries. However, most of the group is still actively employed in every area of the workers' compensation industry. This group now represents over 40 different carriers, TPAs, self-insureds, law firms, medical professions, and in a variety of positions from all over the state. And the group is already planning their next year event for Friday, February 17, 2012. Further details will be available in the near future on their Facebook page. The California Division of Workers' Compensation has announced the winners of the 2011 Carrie Nevins Community Service Award. This year's award in Southern California goes to Jesse Cisneros of Voters Injured at Work. The Northern California recipient is Dory Rose Inda of the Workers' Compensation Enforcement Collaborative. The awards are given at the 18th Annual DWC Educational Conference Luncheons. DIR Director John Duncan said the award is about commending those champions whose extra efforts support an effective workers' compensation system for injured workers and employers. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or your iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.